Well, amen. If you would turn your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Galatians chapter 4. There was a time, it seems like it wasn't too long ago, when everybody kept scrapbooks. I, I had a, a, a couple of them that, the, that my mom had put together. Uh, and there was a time when a lot of people spent a lot of time scrapbooking. Uh, it was... It, I think it was pretty fattish. Some some of you may still be doing it, and that's that's great. Um, others, like my dad, kept very meticulous records of genealogies. Uh, he was able to go back uh, prior, for sure, around the forming of our country, but even prior to that, and could trace uh, our lineage back. And some of you may have been involved in that, or experienced that, or so, you you have someone in your family that does that. Um, there was an emphasis at that time uh, keeping track of those records because it was really important to determine where we had come from because it, it defined who or was part of what defined who we are today. Uh, but that slowly became a thing of, of the past, kind of. I mean, as, again, some of you may still be doing that, but it, it doesn't, it, for a while, didn't have the same emphasis. And that connectedness and that history seemed to go to the wayside and a, a very strict uh, individualism took over. It was all about just who I am as an individual. and But that pendulum that always swings has kind of swung back again recently. Uh, maybe not as much as it was, but it's, it's moving in that direction. And you can tell because there are over 50 plus free sites where people can go and try to trace who they are. And there are a couple of paying sites, uh, Ancestry.com, 23andMe. Uh, people will pay them, and I'm sure more than that, but um, th- that people can pay to try to find out their, their legacy or, or, or who they are um, based on who's come before. And some of it is good. Some, of, some people do it for the right reasons. I mean, it's kind of neat to think about who's in your family line. And, um, but sometimes... It's not so positive. And the reasons for trying to find those things out isn't necessarily positive. There are some with ulterior motives. And in some cases, some of what's been going on to try to identify who we are has led to, I think, has been a part of this tribalism that we've seen. Um, the pride that, that seems to have taken over in some respects. Um, and and. There's been a segregation that's begun, uh, well, that's taking shape again where walls that were once broken down are now being erected again because we're all, you know, coming from different places and we're all different people. And and that and that leads to an unhealthy pride and a and a destructiveness. But is that same ulterior motives, those same ulterior motives and that unhealthy pride that in that physical lineage that was fueling the Judaizers. For those of you who are guests with us, we've been in the book of Galatians since the 1st of June. And, and the Judaizers have been preaching a false gospel and Paul has been fighting against them and his false gospel for four chapters now. And we come to a place where uh, Paul has his sights set on this physical lineage that the Judaizers are putting out there, that they're taking pride in, and that they're using uh, to justify enslaving others to what it is that they believe. 
They're, they're putting a lot of emphasis on this who they are physically. And Paul, very succinctly in these 11 verses in chapter 4, dismantles their argument. We're going to see Paul at his best tonight. Because not only does he ask a rhetorical question, but then he takes a passage that we heard Matt read earlier. He takes that passage that the Judaizers would use or use to build their argument. Paul's going to turn it back on them and show actually that they're wrong. And before we jump in, I do want to remind those of you who are a part of the church. I did send an email out and I took just a couple of minutes um, to explain the first part of verse 24 that says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. And I sent that out in advance uh, because I wanted, I thought it was information that we all needed to have, but I didn't want to take take the time this evening to to break that down and explain it all. And I didn't want it to bog us down and get us away from the main point. Um, so I provided that to you in advance. If you're a guest with us and you would like that and think that I'm just kind of glossing over that whole phrase, uh, I will see me after and I will send that to you. Okay, uh, I'm not running from it. Um, I've already provided that and done the work, but um, we're just not going to completely cover it tonight. That being said, here's our outline. It's in the back of your bulletin. Four points to it in these 11 verses. The question in verse 21, uh, he illustrates uh, that there's an illustration in verses 22 and 23. There's an explanation in verses 24 to 27. And there's an application. And uh, again, if you want that about that whole idea of allegory, I will send that to you because I, I wanted to make sure that we guard against wrongfully allegorizing texts and using this passage to justify it. OK, because it it just shouldn't be. OK, we'll get that to me. Let, let's uh, before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you, Father, that we have heard it read and now we come to. Uh, to hear it preached, I pray that you would empty your servant of anything that would get in the way of us uh, hearing it uh, as we should. I pray that you would remove any distractions that might come from me. I pray and ask that we would see Jesus. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear um, this your word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, in verse 21, Paul, Paul remains, the context of this is Paul remains perplexed. Right? He, he's still beside himself, wondering how things have changed so dramatically in such a short period of time. It's a little over a year, and the gospel that he has preached is now being pushed aside. And another gospel, and I use those air quotes because it's not really a gospel. Paul says that in chapter 1. But this gospel that the Judaizers are putting forth is pushing his gospel, or the gospel of the Lord Jesus, out of the way. And it's been a drastic change. It's been a quick change. And, and he can't get his head around it. And he expresses that bewilderment in this question in verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And, and we could rephrase it in several different ways. We could say, do you want, uh, do you who want to be under the law actually read the law? 
Uh, Do you who want to be under the law actually know what it says? Or we could put it this way. Do you do you who want to follow the law actually know what it is you're wanting to follow? And no matter how you phrase it, his point is the same. The Galatians um, have been quick to buy into this argument of the Judaizers that says that Christ wasn't enough. That salvation is not just through faith in Christ, but it's also through our works. And they've been pounding that away. And if they truly, they've been saying, if you truly want to be saved, if you truly want to be justified, if you truly want to be sanctified, yes, place your faith in Christ, but know that the works of the law and you fulfilling the works of the law are necessary as well. What included circumcision and the dietary laws and the feasts and festivals and keeping the Jewish calendar. In other words, it was the Judaizers were telling the Galatians who were Gentiles that if you want to be saved, you need to become Jewish. And so his question, as most of his questions are, was rhetorical because the answer is rather obvious. He says, tell me, do you desire, do you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And his answer is, you must not have. Because if you did, you would know that what they're saying, what the Judaizers are saying, isn't true. You're obviously not paying attention. And this has been his argument from the beginning. Again, if you've been with us, you know that the keeping of the law was never intended to be a means of salvation. The laws, the purpose of the law was always to point to sin, to continually point out the fact that we can't do anything in and of ourselves to to deal with that sin or change our position. And it was always intended to point us to the only one who could, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's been repeating that over and over and over again. It was Christ who took on the penalty of sin, took on the shame and guilt of sin, and not only did so on the cross, but also lived perfectly, keeping every single solitary bit of the law on behalf of those who would place their faith and trust in Him. And one of the ways the Judaizers would would argue... And try to persuade, and actually were persuading the Galatians, was through their use of scriptural proof texts. That they had read wrongly, and maybe even rightly, but were communicating inappropriately. They were using it to their advantage. And Paul has already, and I encourage you to go back and read Galatians 3, but Paul has already dealt with three of those scriptural um, text proofs in chapter 3, verses 6, uh, verses 10, and verses 16. And here in chapter 4, there's another one. And the Judaizers were apparently misrepresenting and therefore misusing the, the biblical and historical count, account of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, and Ishmael. Misusing the father, mothers, and sons. The story that everybody would have known, that Matt read a portion of earlier. And not only does Paul set the record straight in this passage, but Regarding their misuse, but he also uses it as an illustration for the point that he's been making all along to the Galatians. The real children of Abraham are not physical descendants, they're spiritual descendants. And they are not spiritual descendants by keeping the, phys- by, by keeping the law, but they're spiritual descendants because they've been justified because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at this illustration in verses 22 and 23. Paul writes, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, 
one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Paul says Abraham had two sons. We know the story. We're familiar with it. We know the sons are Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was born to Hagar, who was a slave. And because Ishmael was born to Hagar, he too was a slave. Sarah was his wife. Sarah was free. Isaac was born. And forgive me if I get those two mixed up as we go. But I've I've been thinking through this all week and it's very possible it's going to happen. But Isaac was born to Sarah, who was in fact free. So he himself was free. Both of these sons were born through the natural procreating process. Okay. But... Ishmael is described as being natural born. And what Paul is saying is he was born through man's initiation. In other words, it was Sarah's idea. Abraham bought into the idea and they took it from there. Paul says that, on the other hand, Isaac was born supernaturally. He was born supernaturally through God's initiative. Remember, it was God's idea. Uh, God... Followed through with his plan. He not only promised a child, but he made it physically possible for Sarah to give birth. She was unable to. So not only did uh, did he promise the child, but he brought about uh, the means through which he would be born. And while both were circumcised, God's promise to Abraham of a people was realized through Isaac and not through Ishmael. Therefore... We know that the ethnic Jews were physical sons and daughters of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. And the Gentiles were physical sons and daughters of Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael. And Paul would have agreed with the Judaizers at this point. There's no disagreement about the historical facts. The difference comes in how each of those two, the Judaizers and Paul, explained the results or interpreted those historical events. According to the Judaizers, the Jews were benefactors of the promise because they were physical sons and daughters of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. But again, you've got to go back and read chapter 3, because when we go back to chapter 3, we realize that the Judaizers believed that the covenant with Abraham had been redefined by the covenant with Moses. And so the Judaizers were preaching that the promise, while it was given, was obtained, was, was given by grace, it was obtained through keeping the law. So they've, they, they conflated the two. In other words, the spiritual blessing of God's promise to His people didn't come by faith alone, but came by faith alone and the works of men. It was a faith and works gospel. Faith was no longer the obligation. Works were the obligation. And those works, again, included circumcision, the dietary laws, the spiritual calendar, and looking to Jerusalem as the epicenter of, Of the faith, of religion. So if we were to draw a line, this might help, if we were to draw a line and label it to express what the Judaizers were thinking, we would would start with Abraham, we would go to Sarah, we would go to Isaac, and we would go to Moses, 
We would go to the law in Jerusalem. And if anybody outside, ethnically outside of that group, wanted to be a part, they, of course, had to jump on that line at the point of the law. And they needed to be circumcised and follow those dietary laws and keep the Jewish calendar and understand that everything, everything happened. Again, that epicenter was Jerusalem. But Paul had a different explanation. He had a different interpretation based on divine illumination and divine inspiration. He explains or interprets this, these historic events allegorically or figuratively. It wasn't something he made up. It wasn't something that he just dreamed up to justify his argument. Uh, he does this well within the scope of proper interpretation. Look at verse 27. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. He immediately separates what the Judaizers had conflated. He separates the two into two covenants. And he says, one is from Mount Sinai bearing children of slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. What Paul does is deal a death blow to everything that the Judaizers have been preaching. And he gives the Galatians one obvious choice in terms of who to follow. And... Not only does he use these historical events of father, mothers, and sons, but he also quotes the prophet Isaiah as well. He says, this is, this is not just my idea. This is not just my take on this historic, these historic events. Just understand that this is scriptural. This is biblical. And he says that there is a physical reality and there's a spiritual reality. He says, Hagar... Physically was a slave. And her son Ishmael was a slave. And he was born naturally through man's initiation. Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar took matters into their own hands and had a son, Ishmael. But spiritually, and here, here's where, I mean, right in the face of the Judaizers. And he says, but spiritually... Paul says she represents the covenant with Moses and the law and present Jerusalem. You can imagine the Judaizers. I mean, this guy was trained with the best of the best, and he just missed that completely. I mean, that's what others are hearing. And Paul doesn't back down. Paul says, no, this is true. Physically, right? But spiritually, there's a difference. Her spiritual children are those who are looking to the law and believing they can be justified and sanctified and saved through keeping of that law. And by doing so, they're enslaving themselves to the law. They have become slaves to the law. And, and he says they're, uh, they are born naturally. 
Okay, he says her spiritual children are those who were born naturally and believe. And here's the connection and believe that they can and they are responsible for their own rebirth and believe that somehow they can be born spiritually through their own efforts. And he says, Sarah, on the other side, on the other hand, Sarah physically was free. And Isaac was free because he was born of Sarah and he was born supernaturally. It was God's initiative. He was the one through whom the promise would be realized. But spiritually, she represents the covenant of grace. She represents the covenant with Abraham, the promise and the spirit, the, the Jerusalem above. Again, the Judaizers are thinking, he's, he's got this, what is going on? They're, they're, he's removing the law, but he says, look, her spiritual children are those, for Sarah, her spiritual children are those who are looking to the promise, who are looking to Christ. They're looking to the one to whom the promise ultimately was made. They're looking to the one through whom the promise had been fulfilled. They were looking to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ and resting in his work on their behalf. They're born supernaturally. They're, they're reborn by faith. They, they have no part in their spiritual birth. They, they're not saved by any initiation on their part at all. And again, anyone who heard what Paul was saying, he's, he's just got this all mixed up. And he's got them on their heels. And so he comes with the application which doesn't make matters any better. He says... Now you, brothers, you Galatians, you Gentiles, you like Isaac are children of promise. You're children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. With the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Paul, as, as tough as this is for the Judaizers, Paul is a, a little uh, less forward than even John the Baptist or Jesus, actually. While, while Paul doesn't hold back, he still is a little different than the other two. Because the Judaizers believe, again, that they're physically, they are sons physically and ethnically of Sarah. And so they are spiritually sons of Sarah. But the fact that they're trusting in their own work, the fact that they're looking to themselves other than to Christ, the fact that they're basically saying that what Christ has done on their behalf was insufficient... Paul says, you are not spiritually sons or sons and daughters of Sarah. Spiritually, you're sons and daughters of Hagar. And in the words of Jesus, 
or the words of John the Baptist and Jesus, he's basically saying, you Judaizers, these Judaizers are a brood of vipers. And their father is not even Abraham, but their father is Satan. So when you compare the two, Paul's being a little less forward, though he's knocked the wind right out of them. But on the other hand, he says to the Galatians, while you were physical sons of Hagar, while you are Gentiles, in his words to the Ephesians, you who were once far off have now been brought near. You who were physical sons of Hagar are spiritual sons of Sarah. You are children of the promise, just like Isaac. You've been born, you were born naturally as Gentiles. You've been born supernaturally. And you have been adopted into the family of God. You are now a son and daughter of the creator of the universe. And you don't have to become a Jew. You didn't have to become a Jew. You didn't have to become a Jew and to do all that the Judaizers are expecting you to do to become, uh, to, to be justified or to be sanctified or to be saved. You don't have to trust in your own work. You don't have to look to some sort of merit as if you're able to do something on your own. You don't have to worry about the obedience to the law in terms of your justification. You don't have to look to yourself at all. You who are spiritual sons of Sarah, sons and daughters of Sarah, you who have been justified, have been justified, sanctified, and will be glorified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then to wrap up, he reminds them that the Judaizers aren't even looking for what's in the Galatians' best interest. He said it back in chapter 3. He says it again here in chapter 4. They're leading you down a wrong and frightful path. And, and really, he, he goes another step. He says, and what they're really doing is harassing you. And actually, they're persecuting you. To the point that you need to get, get rid of them. They need to be out of here. And he pours salt in the wounds of the Judaizers when he says, he uses Genesis 21.10. The phrase that they would have used to cast out any Gentiles who didn't conform to the law, he turns it on them and says, look, because of their harassment of you, because of their persecution of you, because they are not trusting in Christ and they're looking to their own merit and their own works to save themselves, they need to be cast out because they are sons Sons and daughters of the slave woman. They need to be removed from your midst. And again, he just punches the Judaizers, knocks the wind right out of them. And then he changes gears as he often does. And he looks at the Galatians and he reiterates, you are the children of promise. You are children of the promise. You are children of the free woman. You are children... Who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And I know it's easy to get bogged down. And we're we're going back and forth through that. And we think. I know it's there. And we're preaching through Galatians. And so you got to do it. But 
And he's made application for the Galatians, but what about us? Having made application to the Galatians, what about application for us? And so I want to take just a minute to do that. And I want to do something that I don't typically do. And I, I've borrowed something from Tim Keller's book on Galatians. Because in it he describes four groups of people. And I want us to think about these four groups of people for just a minute. Just listen to how they're described. Uh, they're, they're described in terms of their trust regarding the law. And their obedience to the law. First, there's a group that consists of those trusting in the law and obeying the law. Trusting in the law and obeying the law. And, and these folks come across very arrogant, very self-righteous, very spiritually superior. On the outside, they look as though they have everything together and that... They themselves believe that they're on good terms with God, not because they're resting in Jesus, but they're resting again in their own efforts. They believe that they have it all together because they're doing their best to keep the law. And they believe that in keeping the law, that they are they are right with God. The problem is that even though there's a good show outwardly, with those in this group, inwardly, there's still an issue because no one can ever be 100% sure that they've ever done enough to please God. And so this group tends to be really, really sensitive uh, when it comes to criticism, spiritually speaking. The second group includes those who are trusting in the law but not obeying the law. So the first group is trusting in the law and obeying the law. The second group is trusting in the law but not obeying the law. And they've got the, a very same strong conviction. They've got this strong conviction that righteousness is merit-based and is works-based. And they've got this equally strong desire to, to fulfill and to do that and to earn their salvation the problem is that they admit that they lack the consistency and the desire to do it well. So all, all the time, they seem to be more humble and more tolerant, but actually they're more guilt-ridden. Because they see a standard, they believe in the standard, they desire the standard, and yet they, they just know they can't meet the standard. But they stay on that treadmill. The third group, and by the way, they they are um, they don't they want to stay out of spiritual discussions discussions because they don't want to be reminded of their inconsistencies, and they don't want to admit to others that they have those inconsistencies. Uh, the third group are not trusting the law and not obeying the law. And this group, these folks are moral relativists. Uh, they choose their own moral standards and strive to meet those moral standards. And if they don't meet those moral standards, they change those moral standards to suit themselves. And then they want to hold everybody else to their moral standards. And 
when they don't like what you're doing or if, they, or if somehow there's a conflict, they'll change the moral standards because you might start meeting their moral standards and they may not like that. So they're going to put another moral standard for you to not meet so they feel better about themselves. They're usually happier. They tend to be happier on the outside than the first two groups. Um, but they're, and but they still exhibit this air of superiority through virtue signals. And again, that's always changing for them and and for others. And then lastly, there are those who are not trusting the law, but keeping the law. This group understands that they've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They understand that, that the law is not something that they can fulfill to earn their salvation. They understand that their salvation has been given to them by grace through the work of Christ. And their desire, having been declared holy and righteous, having been declared not guilty and completely holy and, and saved and adopted as a child, a son or daughter of God in Christ that they desire to become who they've been declared to be. And the law provides that framework where we can look to see how, how, how should we now live. Not under the burden, not under the, in bondage to the law, but in freedom. Freedom. A word that we're going to hear throughout chapter 5. They understand they have new identities. And they're seeking to live in light of that new identity. They're seeking to live a life worthy of that status change. They're more sympathetic than the first group. They are more confident than the second group. And they're more tolerant than the third. Now, unfortunately, if we're honest as believers, we have this tendency to move in and out of and fluctuate between the first three groups. More so than we do resting in the fourth. All of us do. We fluctuate between trusting in the law and keeping the law and trusting in the law and not keeping the law and then throwing our hands up and not trusting the law or, or obeying the law at all. And When we have been, by grace through faith in Christ, declared to be in the fourth group, And it's why we gather every week. Because we all need to be reoriented to who we are in Christ. 
We all need to be reoriented to how we've been justified and how we're sanctified. We all need to be reoriented to, to the hope that we have of a day to come, not because of anything in and of ourselves, but only because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Because of that, Brothers and sisters, hear the words of Paul tonight. You are not children of the slave woman. You are children of promise. You've been justified. You have been sanctified. You are being sanctified. You will be glorified. By grace, how many times have we heard this since June and really before then? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Hear that and may God, may God grant us all grace. May He strengthen our faith. May He grant to all of us power through Christ by His Spirit to live in a manner worthy of the call. Worthy of who we've been declared to be. In Christ. And may we rest in Him alone. May the Lord bless the preaching and hearing of His Word. Let's pray.